0: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. Our goal with this Midweek Show is to cover articles and stories uh, from the the history of of the subject of the Sasquatch, but um we're having a bunch of the stories pre 1900 read currently for us written recorded. So today we're gonna go with something a little bit more recent. Uh it's from an article written in Saga magazine in nineteen seventy by Frank Hansen. Uh the article is titled I Killed the Eight Men of Whiteface. So having said that, um there's a lot of controversy around that. It involves the Minnesota Iceman And Hanson was the man who said to have shot it. So we're going to play uh, the audio that was recorded by Jim Sower. Uh, He narrated that article, and then we'll do a discussion afterwards. So before we jump into that, Tom, did you have anything you want to add?
1: Yeah, I just want to thank everybody. We're pleasantly surprised at the response to the the new episode, uh, Bigfoot in History. And if you want to support the show, you can just click the link in the description uh, for Patreon and just become a Patreon supporter. We appreciate it. Also, you can send us questions for the regular Creek Devil episode to questions at creekdevil.com.
2: Awesome. All right, folks, we'll stand by. Jim's story will be again here very shortly, and we'll do the commentary afterwards. Welcome, This
0: story is being brought to you by William Jevning, and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This story comes to us from Frank Hansen. It is his story, and it is entitled, I Killed the Ape-Man Creature of Whiteface. Is the creature a fabrication, a product of a vivid imagination, expert craftsmanship, and a showman's flair for illusion, or is it really a flesh and blood clue to the development of the family of man? Wanted, dead or alive, the abominable snowman, also known as Yeti, Oma, Amnesty, Sasquatch, and other aliases. The fugitive is a two-footed mammal known scientifically as Homo pongids, or ape-like man. Suspect has been identified as a missing link between the ape and modern man. Eyewitnesses have reported that he closely resembles the Neanderthal species of subhuman. Suspect is described as follows. Height, 6 to 9 feet. Weight, 250 to 800 pounds. Complexion, wind-burned and ruddy. Dress, Suspect's body is covered with one inch long reddish-brown hair except for portions of the face, hands, and feet. He has been seen in the Himalayan mountains, in Russia, United States, and Canada. If some persistent hunter should capture such a creature, we might expect that fame, fortune, and a footnote in scientific history would be his reward. The enigma of the missing link has plagued scientists of the Darwinian theory for many years. The actual body of an ape-man specimen would end this controversy and prove the existence of the abominable snowman. The rewards would be considerable. Through pure chance and random circumstance, I obtained the body of such a creature. Two world-renowned scientists examined the corpse and declared it was a genuine ape-man creature. Scientifically identified as Homo pongids. Belgian scientist Bernard Huvelmans declared, "For the first time in history, a fresh corpse of a Neanderthal-like man has been found. It means that this form of hominid, thought to be extinct since prehistoric times, is still living today. The long search for rumored ape men or missing links has been successful." Huvelmans' associate, author, and scientist. Ivan Sanderson reported in a national magazine that the creature was the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. When the newspapers published articles on my specimen, I was astonished, and then concerned to discover the creature was labeled a hoax by the prestigious Smithsonian Institution of Washington, D.C., to my knowledge No member of the Smithsonian scientific staff has ever examined the specimen described by Dr. Heuvelmans and Ivan Sanderson. I became extremely nervous when the newspapers in both the U.S. and England pointed out that if this creature is real, then there may be the question of how and why it was killed. My fears led me to an attorney and personal friend to explain the possibility of a murder charge the Federal Bureau of Investigation and hordes of lesser law enforcement officials revealed a sudden ominous interest in my specimen. On one occasion, I had to ask my U.S. Senator for his help to get me out of an untenable situation with the Bureau of Customs and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. My dreams of recognition from the scientific community have vanished. My attorney... Adequately summed up the situation one morning, Frank, if you're not careful, you'll end up in a prison cell. Now, for the first time, I want the full story on this creature to be published. I have not asked for and will not receive a single cent from Saga magazine. My main desire is to eliminate much of the supposition and conjecture about a story that has become the biggest controversy in the scientific world in the past decade. Let us start at the beginning. In 1960, I was an Air Force captain and pilot assigned to the 343rd Fighter Group in Duluth, Minnesota. I had five years to go until my retirement as a 20-year Air Force career officer and was looking forward to a quiet life on a small farm somewhere in southern Minnesota. I enjoyed being stationed in Duluth, as the hunting and fishing in northern Minnesota is the best in the world. During the 1960 deer hunting season, I was staying in a small resort on the shores of the Whiteface Reservoir, approximately 60 miles north of Duluth. Lieutenants Roy Affitt and Dave Allison and Major Lou Schraunt were the other members of the hunting party. We left the cabin a few minutes after six on the second morning, and although I had not spotted a deer on the opening day, I was confident that a narrow neck of swamp where I had hunted was one of the best locations in the area. I sat motionless on a hillside overlooking this pine-crested thicket for almost two hours. I was about to leave for another location when a movement at the edge of the swamp Caught my eye. My pulse quickened as I thumbed for the safety catch on my custom 8 millimeter Mauser. A large doe, partially obscured by a cedar tree, was staring directly at me. Suddenly, a shot echoed from the other side of the swamp. With one frightened leap, the doe dashed out of the thicket and headed straight towards me. I raised my gun into firing position, just as she spotted me, Making three great leaps broadside, she scrambled back toward the swamp. I fired just as she reached the edge of the trees and she fell, headlong, onto the ground. I bolted my rifle and tried to get off another shot, but she was up and out of sight into the heavy brush before I could take aim. I walked toward the thicket where I located large spots of blood on the frozen grass. I also discovered that the wounded doe had left a clear trail that Led straight into the swamp. "'There was no snow on the ground, "'and my borrowed compass proved useless. "'It was against my better judgment, "'but I decided to follow the trail "'for a short distance into the swamp. "'I pushed slowly along, "'following the doe's bloody trail, "'expecting her to be lying "'just beyond the next bush. "'After an hour, however, "'I realized that it would be impossible "'to pack the deer out, "'even if I did find her.' I checked my bearings and decided to take just a few more steps before retracing my trail out of the swamp. Stepping over a small cedar log, I heard a strange gurgling sound just ahead. Startled, I raised my gun and listened to the noise for a moment, concluding that the deer had gone down and was strangling in her own blood. Cautiously, I eased my way toward the sound. Suddenly, I froze in horror, the middle of a small clearing, there were three hairy creatures that at first, looked like bears. Two of these creatures were on their knees, tearing at the insides of a freshly killed deer. The deer's innards were scattered around the clearing, and the things were scooping blood from the stomach cavity into the palms of their human-like hands, raising their cupped hands of fresh blood to their mouths. They swallowed the liquid. Without warning, the male leaped straight up into the air from his crouched position. His arms jerked upward high over his head, and he let out a weird screeching sound. Screeching and screaming, he charged towards me. I cannot remember aiming my rifle, nor do I recall pulling the trigger. But a bullet must have slammed into the beast's body. As blood spurted from his face, the huge creature staggered, "'seemingly stunned by this unexpected happening. "'I do not recall ejecting my spent shell, "'nor do I recall firing my rifle again. "'In many sweat-drenched nightmares, however, "'I have vividly envisioned the blood-covered face "'lying on the ground beside the mutilated deer. "'I have absolutely no recollection "'of ever seeing the other two creatures again. "'They seem to have vanished into thin air.' Blind with fear, I started to run. I dashed over the swampy terrain, not knowing or caring in which direction I ran. My only thought was to get away from those horrible things. I stumbled, fell, picked myself up, and fell again. I thought they were right behind me. Finally, I fell onto the frozen marshland, completely exhausted, not caring if the creatures caught me. I lay there, waiting for the attack. I have no recollection of time, and perhaps my mind blanked out. When I regained composure, there was only the natural silence of the swampland. I wondered if I hadn't fallen asleep and dreamed the whole thing. Regardless, I knew I must find my way out of the swamp. My compass, which I had borrowed from Major Schrott, was next to worthless, I raised my rifle and fired the three rapid shots that signal a hunter is in trouble. Nothing happened. I reloaded my rifle and fired again, this time returning shots echoed in the distance. I moved in the direction of the shots, but stopped periodically and listened intently for some familiar sound. After traveling a considerable distance, I finally heard someone calling to me. Traveling in the direction of the voice, I finally emerged onto a hilly clearing and saw a group of hunters standing around their camp. I approached, and, hiding my fright, explained that I had become lost from my hunting party that morning. Two of the hunters seemed to know where our green pickup was parked, and volunteered to drive me back in their automobile. It was past noon now when we arrived back at our parked truck. Lou and the boys were waiting. I threw the compass at Lou. That compass isn't worth a cent, I complained. Huh, you're the great white hunter who got lost, someone chuckled, chiding me for my lack of wood lore. On several occasions that day, I started to mention my harrowing experience to my companions. I wanted to confide in someone, but how could I? Military retirement was less than five years away. I might lose everything if this story got out. The night surgeon might even believe I was mentally unstable and unfit for flying duty. I could be forced out of the Air Force on a medical discharge. My mind reeled with the possibilities. If I returned to the swamp, what would it prove? Had I killed the creature... Was it an escaped gorilla? Or was it a man dressed up for some deer-hunting prank? Except for being completely hair-covered, the thing seemed to have every feature of a human being. What about the two creatures that had escaped? Or had the whole thing been the product of my imagination? Everything was unreal and totally incomprehensible. Our hunting party returned home, and I spent a month wrestling with my conscience. I had been troubled with migraine headaches several years previously, and now they returned with a pounding intensity. I swallowed dozens of pills each day. As both an instructor and instrument check pilot, I always flew as aircraft commander. I often had a pilot who was neither current nor checked out for the particular aircraft we were flying, so I avoided airtime except for a single four-hour flight near the end of the month. I knew it was impossible to continue to fly until the mystery of my experience in the swamp had been resolved. I watched the weather closely, waiting for a heavy snow, which would provide good tracking conditions. I would not consider going into that swamp again without being able to backtrack in my own footsteps. On the 29th of November, it happened. The weather reported five inches of fresh snow in the Whiteface area. On Friday, December 2nd, a warm front moved in, and the snow was slowly melting, making ideal tracking conditions. By now, I had formed a plan. The following day, I took my automatic shotgun, several rounds of double-odd buckshot, "'hooked my swamp buggy to the back of my pickup "'and with Mike, my faithful dog, "'headed north to Whiteface Reservoir. "'Passing Ranta's Resort, "'I proceeded to the east side of the lake. "'After the bug was unhooked "'and the chains installed on the huge DC-3 aircraft tires, "'I headed down the old logging trail "'looking for the area where we had parked our truck "'during the hunting season. "'Mike was trembling with anticipation,' and I was shaking with fear. Any mishap could be disastrous. It seemed doubtful that any other human would enter this portion of the woods for the rest of the winter. I was also aware of the possibility of encountering one or more of the things, and not knowing what to expect created a fear that was almost causing me to turn back. The bug ran beautifully, as I inched through the soft snow, so I turned my attention to searching for a familiar landmark. After making several lucky guesses at why is in the trail, I suddenly recognized the small clearing where the truck had been parked. Again, almost uncontrollable fear gripped me as I parked the bug. My heart raced wildly as I pulled my shotgun from the rack and headed for my old stand overlooking the swamp. The old trail that had been taken by the wounded doe was covered with snow, so I inched in a general direction toward the scene. It was difficult to walk, as small logs covered with snow acted as built-in obstacles. I was constantly on the alert for tracks in the melting snow. Once I fell across a snow-covered log and just remained there to rest for a few minutes. Mike, working in his usual circle, jumped a browsing deer that came crashing through the thicket <sighs> my heart leaped into my throat i was ready to run when mike started to dig at the body under the snow i realized then that the events of that horrible day a month earlier had been real i staggered to my feet called mike to my side and spent several minutes staring at the huge hairy body finally "'I brushed the snow away from the head "'and noticed that one eye seemed to be completely missing. "'But there was so much frozen blood "'it was impossible to tell for sure. "'The face was not covered with hair, "'but the neck, shoulders, and stomach "'were caked with frozen blood. "'The creature's left arm was twisted under the body, "'but I compared the right hand with my own. "'This hand appeared identical to mine, "'except it was twice as large.' As I was inspecting the creature, my fear suddenly vanished. I was now convinced I had not killed a true human being, but something similar to man, perhaps some freak of nature. Maybe it was a mutant of some type. I examined the poor creature and realized it was in a perfect state of preservation. I also noticed that the dead deer had been completely devoured by predators, Why hadn't these predatory animals eaten the flesh of the hairy thing? There was indeed a mystery surrounding this freak. I decided that the creature should not be left in the swamp. I was still concerned with the scandal that could jeopardize the retirement from the Air Force. It was impossible to dig a grave in the frozen earth. If the creature was left in the swamp... A wandering hunter might stumble over the body in the spring. An investigation by law officers might lead the authorities to me. There was only one thing to do. I left the swamp buggy concealed in the woods and went back to Duluth with my pickup. I told my wife that the bug had become stuck and that I would have to get a pick and shovel an axe and a chainsaw. I returned to the swamp the following day and inched the bug back into the bush, cutting a trail as I went. Using an ice chisel from the truck, I chopped the creature's body from the frozen earth. Loading that hulk onto the rear platform of my swamp buggy was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. The body was rough, dead weight, and was frozen solid. Finally, the icy form was laid out on the platform, and I snugged it down with cargo straps that were standard equipment in the bug. When I reached the pickup, I struggled to transfer the monstrous form to the truck bed. Again, the nylon straps were indispensable. It was after dark when I pulled up to my home in the suburban military housing area of Duluth. My wife, Irene, was almost hysterical when she saw the gigantic corpse... I was now beginning to accept the creature, and finally I convinced her of the seriousness of my experience. What do you plan to do with the thing, she asked, fearfully staring at the ape-like form. Well, I can't dig a grave. The ground is frozen solid, I explained. Well, maybe we can keep it in the freezer until spring. We had just purchased a large food freezer two weeks earlier. But the freezer is full of meat, Irene protested. "'Then we'll have to give the meat away,' I answered. "'My retirement is more important than a few dollars' worth of meat.' She finally agreed to my plan. Like many military wives, she was accustomed to adjusting to unforeseen and unpredictable circumstances. We put our three children to bed, waited until they were asleep, and then, with the use of straps, dragged the carcass of the creature into the basement.' "'We'd better keep the thing covered,' Irene said, as she went upstairs for an old army blanket. "'I'll keep the kids out of the basement and clean out the freezer.' When I returned home after duty on Monday, I discovered my wife had cleaned out the freezer, as she had promised. However, she was almost hysterical over the thought of having that horrible thing in the basement. "'I don't know what it is,' she confided, "'but it smells terrible and the odor is all over the house.' Despite the stench, we entered the basement and bent the creature's arms and legs so that it would fit into the freezer. Either the body was still frozen or rigor mortis had set in. It was an extremely difficult task, and we both breathed easier when the creature was completely in and the top securely fastened. We washed our hands several times and placed our clothes in the washer to soak. Later that night, we opened the basement windows for a thorough airing. "'Let's not tell a single person about this,' I cautioned. "'We'll just leave it here till spring.'" The creature remained in our food freezer for almost a month. Then my curiosity drew me into the basement. Man or animal? A mutant human or a cross between the ape and man family? There were a hundred different explanations— I opened the freezer and discovered the creature's body was dehydrating. Certain parts of the body looked like pieces of dried-up meat. I went back upstairs and told Irene of the dilemma. If we bury it in the spring, it won't make any difference, I said. But if we learn what it is and decide to keep it, then it should be properly preserved. I don't know how to keep it from drying out. My wife thought a moment. Remember those Canadian lake trout that we kept for two years? We froze them in ice water and they stayed fresh. Perhaps the thing could be preserved that way. It's worth a try. We started by pouring 20 gallons of ice water into the freezer each day. The job was completed within a week, and our incredible secret was now encased in a solid block of ice, safe from prying eyes and freezer burn. To make certain that no one could open the freezer, the door was locked, and I kept the only key. When the spring thaw arrived, I was faced with another dilemma. It would require several days to melt the ice around the creature's body, and, in the process, the basement of our home would be filled with an odorous stench. I was also concerned about the danger of burying the thing. A passerby might see me digging a grave and alert the police. Transporting the body away from my home to a grave site was equally dangerous. I envisioned a traffic accident, with a smelly creature tossed out on the pavement and a police officer staring at me as I fumbled for some rational explanation. My wife was now accustomed to having the creature in the freezer, so I decided to leave it in the basement and not press her luck. In the summer of 1961, we purchased a farm near Rolling Stone, Minnesota. In preparation for my retirement, we agreed that the family would move to the farm at that time and I would commute on weekends. I could not risk allowing a moving company to transfer our freezer, so I rented a U-Haul truck and moved all of our furniture by myself. Friends helped skid the heavy meat-packed freezer out of the basement and into the truck. A couple of fellows asked why I didn't remove the meat first, but I explained that I wanted to keep it cold inside for the long trip to the farm, and besides, I couldn't seem to locate the key in all the confusion of moving. The trip from Duluth to Rolling Stone took seven hours, and the top layer of ice had started to melt. Friends and relatives again assisted in unloading the furniture and skidding the heavy freezer into the basement. I breathed easier when it was safely situated in the utility room of our remote farmhouse. I could not get by until retirement without fear of exposure. I was concerned that the power failure might occur, so I purchased a standby generator to cope with such an emergency. It was also gratifying to know that it could now be buried at any time in our back forty without fear of being seen. In November 1965, I retired from the Air Force after completing 20 years of active service. I joined my family at the farm and quickly became disillusioned with the inactivity of life. I now had plenty of opportunity to read and for the first time became acquainted with the many stories and legends about the so-called abominable snowman. The more articles I read the more certain I became that the thing in our freezer was a type of snowman. I now began to make discreet inquiries about the statute of limitations on murder and learned that there was no time limit in the state of Minnesota. Because of this, the decision was made to just sit tight with our specimen safely in the freezer for a while longer. In December 1966, I happened to meet a veteran showman who quickly recognized my boredom of civilian life and suggested that I become a full-time showman by exhibiting a rare old John Deere tractor that I had acquired and loaned to the Smithsonian Institution. It had been returned to me from Washington, and I was showing it on a highly selective basis. Take your tractor on a full-time circuit of major fairs. "'You won't get rich, but you'll have fun "'and discover a whole new world out there,' he said. "'Suddenly a thought dawned on me. "'Hey, would some sort of a frozen hairy creature "'resembling a prehistoric man make a good attraction?' (laughs) "'The showman almost choked. "'It's a great idea, but where would you ever get "'such a specimen like that?' Hmm, "'Perhaps I could get one made,' I said, "'not being able to divulge my secret.' I returned home with only one thought in mind and immediately consulted with my attorney concerning the legalities of exhibiting the creature. He listened with amusement until I drove him to my farm and opened the freezer. He stared down into the cloudy ice with horrified fascination. Later, we discussed the legal aspects. "'There's always the possibility of a murder charge if this thing is judged to be human,' he informed me. "'There are also laws concerning the transportation of dead bodies. "'I can see all sorts of legal difficulties.' "'I'm convinced the creature would make a great exhibit,' I said. "'Isn't there any way to do it by creating a model?' "'He lit another cigarette and thought a moment. "'You have the original body.' The authorities will be after it because this thing is the scientific find of the century. However, it might be possible to create a model, as you suggested. Maintain a record of the model's construction, but show the real creature instead. If the officials pressure you, it's a small matter to produce photos of the model taken during different phases of fabrication. Better than that, I replied. I'll even exhibit the model for the first year so that it will be accepted by carnies as a bogus show. In January 1967, I made sketches of the real creature and went to Hollywood to confer with men who make models for the motion picture industry. I talked with Bud Westmore, the director of makeup at Universal Studios. He informed me that such a model might cost up to $20,000. Westmore didn't have the time to make the creation, but he agreed to offer his technical knowledge if I needed it. He also agreed that it would be a challenging endeavor. I then consulted with a staff member of the Los Angeles County Museum. He suggested that I contact Howard Ball, an independent artist who was creating life-size fiberglass elephants to be displayed at the La Brea Tar Pits. I later engaged Ball to sculpture the carcass and mold the body. John Chambers, a makeup artist and Academy Award winner from 20th Century Fox, suggested that a small wax studio in Los Angeles could implant the hair according to my specifications. I approached Pete and Betty Coral. They agreed to do the work and implanted each hair individually with an open-ended needle. I constantly directed this portion of their work, and it was magnificent. They were great artists and a pleasure to deal with. By the time the model was completed, I had another worry. There was no guarantee that any exhibit would make money on the fair circuit, yet I had spent several thousand dollars, some of it borrowed, to obtain the model. Despite my misgivings, I enlisted the aid of a friend in Pasadena, and we added the finishing touches to make it look as close to the specimen in my freezer as possible. The bloody eyes, broken arm, and the blood-soaked hair was carefully duplicated to match the original. It was now time to freeze the ice around the model, and this presented a few humorous moments. I rented a cold storage room from a Los Angeles ice company, and at 8 a.m. one sunny morning I pulled in with my monstrous creation in the rear of my station wagon. A stunned executive happened to stroll by and did several double takes. "'Where are you going with that thing?' he stammered. "'I've rented a storage room for a few days,' I explained. "'In our company?' he stared at the model and twisted his hands in anguish. "'My gosh, was that a living thing?' This is a food processing plant. Get that thing out of here before a government inspector sees it. Later, I arranged to ice down the model at a privately owned locker plant that had recently shut down. The final phases of my creation were completed there. I placed the model in a refrigerated coffin designed especially for the exhibit. This was done with heavy straps and a rented forklift. The coffin was transported in a special show trailer to Los Banos, California, arriving just in time for its debut with the West Coast Shows. On the 3rd of May, 1967, the exhibit was opened to the public for the first time as a what-is-it type of show. "'Where did it come from?' curious spectators inquired. "'Well, it is claimed to have been found by some Chinese fishermen in the Bering Straits,' was my stock reply." My cover story had been created in advance and worked very well, so I stuck to it for the next two years. As I continued along the fair circuit that year, I readily admitted to other showmen that this was a creation. All agreed it was a compelling attraction, but the model contained too many imperfections to fool anyone with an expert knowledge of anatomy. Our tour continued until November, 1967, when we closed at the Louisiana State Fair and returned to our farm home in Rolling Stone for the winter. By March 1968, I had convinced myself that it was safe to substitute the real specimen for the coming fair season. I cut off refrigeration to melt the ice from both specimens and made the switch using my farm tractor loader and an I-beam. I worked the creature into a position closely resembling the model by cutting the tendons in the arms and legs. I then started the difficult task of creating ice around the specimen. This will be the greatest exhibit to hit the fair circuit, I said after the job was completed. Even a trained scientist would be shocked to see this. The 1968 season was one of the most remarkable in our history. Physicians... Professors and college students came from everywhere to see the exhibit, all pondered on the possibilities of a true, missing link. At the Oklahoma State Fair, one prominent surgeon visited the exhibit nine separate occasions. Each time, he brought a different colleague. Even a high official of the state of Oklahoma tactfully suggested that we were not promoting our exhibit fully by showing it on the fair circuit. At the Kansas State Fair, the county pathologist was so intrigued that he sent many of his associates to see the creature. Apparently, the exhibit was brought to the attention of Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans by one of their colleagues. They called and asked permission to examine the creature. This was a grave mistake on my part. Both men were visibly impressed but made no mention of releasing a scientific report. However, Dr. Huvelmans published an article on the Homo Pongids, the ape man, in a February 1969 bulletin of the Royal Institute of Natural Science of Belgium. The long search for the rumored live ape man, or missing link, has at last been successful, he reported. Ivan Sanderson published an article in the May 1969 issue of Argosy magazine. Let me say simply, he wrote, that one look was actually enough to convince us that this was, from our point of view at least, the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. If nothing else confirmed this, the appalling stench of rotting flesh exuding from a point in the insulation of the coffin certainly did. My problem started again with the publication of Huvelman's article. It seemed as if every newspaper, radio station, magazine, and television station in the world wanted to verify the existence of the creature. Calls poured in each day from London, Tokyo, Berlin, Rome, and scores of American cities. The Smithsonian Institution requested permission to inspect the carcass. This request was promptly refused. Dozens of scientists asked permission to remove a core sample of the creature. Biologists wanted hair and blood samples. Huvelmans had stated in his article that it appeared that the creature had been shot. Newspapers began to speculate on the possibility that law enforcement authorities should investigate the manner in which I obtained the creature. If the body is that of a human being... There is the question of who shot him and whether any crime was committed, an article in the Detroit News reported. With these events swarming into my life, I became a regular visitor to my attorney's office. His advice was clear-cut and direct. Frank, you had better substitute the model for the real specimen and then take off for a long vacation. This sounded like good advice so I made arrangements to make the transfer in a cold storage warehouse. The original specimen was put into a refrigerated van and sped to a hiding place away from the Midwest. Refreezing the model took several days, and it was during this period that newspapers carried accounts of both me and the creature vanishing. During the past few months, I have been pressed for the conditions or circumstances under which I would consider giving the specimen up for scientific evaluation. Two conditions must be met before I would even consider such an action. 1. A statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of federal laws. 2. A statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of state and local laws where the specimen was transported or exhibited during the 1968 fair season. There will surely be skeptics that will brand this story a complete fabrication. Possibly it is. I am not under oath, and should the situation dictate, I will deny every word of it. But then no one can be completely certain unless my conditions of amnesty are met. In the meantime... I will continue to exhibit a hairy specimen that I have publicly acknowledged to be a fabricated illusion and leave the final judgment to the viewers. If one should detect a rotting odor coming from the corner of the coffin, it is only your imagination. A new seal has been placed under the glass and the coffin is airtight. The story was published in Saga Magazine, July 1970. And the story is written by Frank Hansen. Thank you for listening.
2: All right, we're back. Um, You know, it's always interesting to me, and I think the best policy is to go to the original source of a story uh, to get the information. And it had been a while, and I even you know, wrote a book called the Minnesota Iceman and put a lot of this information in there, but it's been a long time since I'd revisited that information. And, you know, with all the stuff we have going on, it's easy to forget some of those details. As we mentioned on episode 146 of Creek Devil, um, you know, we discussed a little bit about the Minnesota Iceman and my hunch, you know, of course that it was not, it's not really, um, and not just that one, but the creatures, you know, Hanson encountered three of the creatures, uh, and then sightings from that region of the of the northeastern us and, and southeastern canada seems to predominantly have this type of creature the type four as we call them uh and i suspect they're not really a sasquatch what we associate like with the patterson film etc but um so it, it's interesting you know the things and the details that hansen talked about in that article you know things that i had uh I guess either spaced off or kind of forgotten and the re- it shows a lot of the reasons for the controversy. So Tom, let's, uh, let's go ahead and delve into this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I listened to the article again and a couple of things, you know, I just took some notes, uh, listening to it. And what really caught my attention at the very beginning is he says, well, I don't recall shooting the creature and he doesn't recall ejecting the, the shell casings. And i'm like really you don't remember that <laughs> uh, and to me that sounds like and there's just speculation on my part um it, it sounds like his lawyer may have advised him or i would say that's a possibility <clears throat> excuse me he's advised us, i don't remember doing this and and then the other note that i wrote down I'm prosecuted I'm like, really? For what? Self-defense? The same comes at you, and you're supposed to allow it to attack, harm, or you know, kill you, and you're not allowed to defend yourself. Uh, I would think that you would. But then, picking up the frozen corpse and transporting it—that's that's a whole nother story.
2: Well, I would think, you know, this was 1960 when this happened, and you know, the guy's an Air Force officer; he's a captain. 15 years of service and and he's got a lot of concerns as he states in the article about you know completing a service time and retirement and all that uh, so you can kind of you can kind of hear it you know in Jim's reading the way he wrote it that there was a conflict in his own mind about first of all whether the event happened okay and we hear that a lot from witnesses and I guess even myself you know with my first encounter going out then you, know, you question yourself afterwards did that really happen so then you go back and look for the evidence you know to sort of prove it to yourself and we hear this time and time and time again with witnesses then there's the possible legal ramifications after he starts looking into this
1: yeah and i guess kind of the point that i want to make is uh, he wouldn't be throwing out all this stuff if it didn't really happen it sounds like to me it's just another little element in the story that adds authenticity to it. And we'll get into more, uh, points here in a bit, but there's just a whole lot of things in this story that really line up to, it actually happened.
2: Well, the one thing I noticed, you know, throughout the article from start to finish is he leaves it in a position where, uh, if it were to go through the legal channels, that there would be this huge question hanging in the air you know, about, well, whether it was real or not, you know what I'm saying? So if anybody prosecuting, you know, decided to put their sights on him and go after him, uh, there would always be that question in the air.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he he mentioned amnesty at the very end. Uh, and he was ambiguous about, you know, you really can't pin him down that this happened or not. So I had to look up the difference between uh, immunity and amnesty, and there, you know, the the legal beagles and the lawyers out there are going to you know maybe correct me on this, but it sounds like amnesty was the actual that that's the correct term, you know, it's a sovereign power uh, granting a general pardon or oblivion for a past offense. So. Uh, he was, uh, you yeah, know, that, that was a genuine, genuine concern of his.
2: Well, and he made, you know, he made the comment about the appearance of the creature, you know, other than, you know, the hair covered body and et cetera. Um, the features were, were human looking, which is not typically what a Sasquatch has. It's, it, this, that's why I say this other type four creature may not be, it may be a different type of hominid, you know, relic hominid that exists. Um, and we look back at neanderthals and and nobody really knows if neanderthals were anywhere except for uh, europe because you know they're the fossil records very incomplete and folks we're going to have as a little heads up uh, on episode 147 we're going to have two anthropologists on the show and we're going to discuss some of these things and i think that'll be very very interesting very revealing so i'm not going to delve too deeply into it here we'll talk to them about you know, because they're qualified on that too, uh, in terms of, you know, fossils and, and where different species were or could be. But it's interesting that there have been other hominid species, you know, bones found in different places around the planet. So, uh, whether these creatures are something that's a, a leftover, we don't know, but it's interesting. You saw three of them. Uh, and I, you know, the first thing I caught and I'd forgotten about, <clears throat> Because I I remember focusing on them drinking the blood, but when he describes them having disemboweled the deer, where did we hear that recently? You know, from uh, Carol in Missouri, uh, where, you know, the lady was knocked down and woke up to see the creature eating her own intestines.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we've heard that. Um, You know, we've heard that in association with these creatures, not going to go into details, but where they, they do that, where they actually disembowel and they go for the soft tissues So,
2: I think that's kind of a predator uh, behavior anyway you look at many predators and that's kind of the first thing they go for is soft tissues
1: yeah and we've talked about in Africa where there's uh, conflict between actually regions that are the chimps consider theirs and the humans are kind of you know expanding and encroaching on their territory there's conflict I mean very violent conflict where the chimps that's exactly what they do was they would uh, disembowel people and and go for their soft tissues, you know, of the the
2: abdomen. And I think, you know, in a lot of species out there, it's sort of an instinctual knowledge that going for that particular part of a body causes a lot of damage. So if you're in a fight, you want to, um, you want to cause damage to your opponent. And that's certainly a, a big way to do it.
1: Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the gal that Carol was talking about. Um, you know, you she, she passed out for whatever reason. <laughs> oh, the creature knocked her out. Yeah, right. And then you wake up, and it's got your small intestines in its mouth. And you, but you survived that, which I applaud that. I think that's fantastic. But what a nightmare.
2: So, you know, this is what Hansen says he sees. You know, he comes on these creatures. He hears the gurgling noise. So he thinks it's the deer dying in its own blood, choking on its own blood. And he approaches and sees these three creatures. Two of them are down, you know, on their knees, uh, the internal organs and blood of this deer. And then he said the male jumps up and charges him. And that's a good point, you know, about maybe, um, you know, saying he doesn't remember is a matter of legal uh, perspective but it also could be something like tacky psyche where, you know, it was such a shock to his system that, and he couldn't make sense of it. His mind couldn't make sense of it. So that part of his brain blocked that out. It's hard saying what the actual cause of this information was, or it was a combination, maybe partially remembered. And then, you know, the lawyer said, Hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't remember certain parts.
1: Yeah, it could be. And you know, when, when he did shoot the creature, he, he, whether by intention or just by sheer good luck, he shot it in the correct place he shot it in the eye which goes through goes into the brain and that shuts off the central nervous system and done deal um, you know what I found curious though is okay so he shoots the thing bam it's down that's it you don't survive that the other two take off running you know we've had accounts and and there's there's exceptions to every rule but so often we hear that when one of the creatures dies uh, two or more of the other companions will come by and retrieve the body, as if they don't want it to be uh, discovered. And you know there was a an incident a long time ago that you know a few years back where, where um, Lee was talking about somebody that he knew where the gentleman had shot killed one of these things, put it on his tractor, dumped it in the river. It got. Hung up about a hundred yards downstream in a in a tangle of logs, and he's like, "Oh no, there's no way that you know." Next morning he goes out there and it's gone. It could not have naturally freed itself from that log jam, so something came and retrieved it.
2: Well, now that could be uh, a division between you know what we think it was a Sasquatch and this type of creature. Maybe there's you know some kind of a behavioral difference where. You know, typically with Sasquatch accounts, where you know something has been shot or or died naturally or what have you, and the body is taken away. Not all the time, because they have been found. Yes, uh,
1: right. I was going to bring that up. Yeah,
2: it's either the same with these creatures. Maybe the the other two were so terrified of the the shooting and the gunfire that they just left and and left the dead member there. But what's curious is, um, and this is a hallmark of the whole Bigfoot thing, is um, When he went back and the deer carcass had been eaten. Now, did the other two creatures come back and finish eating the deer or was it other scavengers, you know, coyotes, what have you? uh, But they didn't touch the carcass of the creature he shot.
1: That's a, you know, that's a good point because I wrote that down in the notes when I was listening to the story. I didn't think about it from that standpoint. I had assumed that it was just other predators, coyotes or what have you. Uh, And I was going to ask. I think we've heard this before why uh these creatures just you know other animals avoid them like the plague even when they're dead
2: yeah i was taken years ago well back around 1980 to a place um not far from where the two elk had been dismembered we talked about that story a few times on the show before uh near wilkeson washington and closer towards enumclaw and i can't think of the name of the place off the top of my head but Uh, our family friend, Charlie, you know, he, he was out, I don't know what he was doing out there looking for cascara or something, but he found a complete carcass of a bear and it was rotted away all just the bones. And it was right where it fell. Nothing was touched or disturbed. All the bones are in place except for the front of the skull was, was smashed in, which is the only indicator of how it died. I mean, something smashed the front of this bear's head in oh really and it was just pulverized you know the bone fragments were it was just fragmentary while it was there and uh i took pictures i don't have them anymore unfortunately but i took um the carcass i loaded it up and took it to the college i was going to and a friend of mine there was uh and i can't remember what his background was but he was able to identify it positively as that of a black bear so something had killed the bear and and it was interesting the point of this is the fact that there were lots of coyotes lots of dogs near the because there were ranches out there there was a lot of things that would have gone and scavenged the bear's remains if nothing else the bones you know small animals too uh, and absolutely nothing had touched that carcass so i, I found that very fascinating because you don't see that in the wild
1: right i remember you telling me about that i didn't i don't either i don't remember or i didn't know that its head had been smashed in that's that's pretty uh, interesting.
2: Well, it is, and that's something we hear about how you know Sasquatches kill their intended prey is by smashing the skull in. So that
1: that does it, you know.
2: <laughs> so my <laughs> thinking, I mean, without direct evidence, you kind of put two and two together and say, hmm, what else would smash a black bear's head in? I mean, to where the where the skull is so fractured you can't even identify it as much of a skull. I mean, there were there were remnants of the back part, which you know showed clearly it was the skull but the whole front of the skull was pulverized
1: and, yeah and even a high-powered rifle isn't going to do that
2: no there was no there was no gunshots in the animal whatsoever because uh, bone you know some of the bones would have indicated that but it wasn't shot and it wasn't touched which you know again is a it's one of these features of sasquatch kills whatever they are dealing with isn't touched afterwards by any other animal
1: you know i've always been curious about that because there's something we don't know what it is because we can't interview the dogs or the other animals to say hey um why is it that you get so freaked out when you do you smell them do you hear something what is it that you just want you know we, we've we had todd on from northern california a while back you know he had a dog that would go after bears it would go after mountain lions these things are around and that dog just can't dig a hole deep enough to get away from them quick enough
2: yeah and it's you know thinking back about that bear carcass it was interesting i mean it was just the bleached bones laying there where exactly where the animal fell and some of the hair was still left so it was laying there a long time you know to be in that state and there must have been some kind of scent around the spot you know that kept every other animal away
1: That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. Um, And these things do have a scent. They do. You know it. I know it. Right. Uh, And it's not good. Um, Well, I don't want to get too far off topic. You know, that is that skull that I showed you, the deer skull that was in perfectly preserved found just sitting out, you know, in that area that I've told you about up in the Cascades. Why was it? so perfectly preserved. I mean, the antlers, I mean, it would be a great
2: trophy. Yeah, because, you know, porcupines and other animals, they chew on on animal bones. And, you you know, if you don't see any kind of chew marks, it's kind of unusual.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it may have had a few chew marks, but I think it was a bleached skull. So if if the chew marks did happen, I I think it happened long, long, long after this thing, had deceased, the odor was gone. And with the
2: antlers still attached, that was interesting.
1: yeah. Yeah, I've never, because I've never seen that before. I've seen, you know, you'll
2: see sheds. I can't say I have either. Yeah. So, Um, so getting back to Hanson, you know, that, that was an interesting feature. You know, I mean, it's, it kind of throws it up in the air. It's like, well, you know, what, what took the deer Uh, anyway? So then he, then he talks about, you know, how he ended up freezing it and, and all of that. That was all very interesting. Uh, and also creating the the fake one. I had kind of forgotten that but that he um, You know, everybody thinks well we, he created the fake one and that was that well and, and then it was later and it wasn't it was actually before he started showing it created the fake one kind of based on what the attorney told him
1: Yeah, exactly
2: And what's interesting um, is the fact that you know people want to discount his whole story But the fake one still exists. Somebody owns it today
1: yeah they do I saw an article on that a while back. It was from some guy who had actually seen the real one and he bought the fake one. he he scrounged up the money and bought it and uh, but he wanted to he wanted to see the real one again. I thought it was interesting.
2: You know it's interesting Hanson also talked about having you know the fake one and the real one in storage facilities in California. Now, I was contacted. Uh, this has been two or three years ago now by a person who said that a friend of his, a female friend of his, uh, apparently was, uh, you know, trying to be um, uh, impressed by a gentleman who had the original creature in cold storage and he was going to show the creature to her and did. And apparently much of the ice was gone. It was still there, but, uh, her comments were that, there was hair sticking out of the ice, and, and it had a really nasty smell. So, uh, but I was never able to uh, get to talk to this lady. So that just shows. And that's it was also in California where this happened to be.
1: Oh, oh! oh. So somebody's got it. Somebody has somewhere. it. I was thinking it was in a swamp somewhere dumped. No, no, it's it's still not. in uh, it's still
2: on ice. Okay. Now exactly where it's at. We don't know, but. Uh, that was the last I heard of it, and like I said, that was just that was two or three years ago, and I, I was never able to, or this person was never able to, you know, or make arrangements for the lady to talk to me because I, I was just curious to hear a direct wit or witness that saw directly the creature, you know, currently.
1: How accurate do you think the uh, the model is to the real one, especially the head and the face?
2: Well, that's a good question because um, he said he said in the article that he used, you know, details from the actual creature to make the mock-up so it must be fairly accurate i would think
1: well the reason i asked is because you know your book the minnesota Iceman man on the cover it's got a picture of the face i've always been absolutely and i think it was on argosy as well um i've always been interested in that because it is it's human looking it really is
2: yeah it's it's not at all like uh and i've got professional artists who were sasquatch witnesses who made artwork and sent me their artwork and it's nothing like and my own sighting included what i saw is is very closely aligned with what these artists made so and it's nothing like what you see in the the minnesota iceman
1: no not at all
2: it's uh... in the overall description you know it wasn't much more it was around six feet high all three of the creatures were they were kind of uniform in size it just it just kind of points the finger, sort of a different creature, if you ask me. That's my opinion,
1: though. Yeah. Well, and it makes this topic um, all that much more interesting, I think.
2: And I think a lot of the controversy, because I, you know, DeHinnon and Green, you know, told me their thoughts about the Iceman back in the late '70s, and I, I think all the controversy that Frank Hansen himself created around the story. As evidenced in the article to protect himself on the legal front is the reason that nobody really wanted to pursue that and and those two guys certainly did not
1: yeah exactly well and you know the fact that he had those two scientists take a look at the creature
2: and not just those two but remember he talked about uh, one of the places it was being displayed and a scientist came to look at it, and then subsequently there were quite a number of his colleagues that came to also examine it. I've never heard anything from any of those people.
1: Yeah, they said he said it was a a surgeon or a doctor right. from the local area. He came through. He witnessed it nine times, bringing officials and other
2: right, right, other interested parties. And that's when he started getting worried again.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess that kind of. Uh, Kind of wraps up our commentary folks i don't know what you think about all this I'm, i know there's still a lot of controversy but like i said i think a lot of it was created by ha- frank hansen himself in order to prepare a situation if he were under legal scrutiny to extricate himself from any kind of prosecution so let us know your thoughts in the comments and uh, tom any final thoughts before we uh, wrap this piece up
1: yeah well again i just want to thank everybody uh, i just want to say that even though the the new episode that we're creating is bigfoot in history uh, depending upon when you were born and from today's perspective this is still a historical you know this isn't predating the patterson gimlin but it's still somewhat back in history
2: well the actual event happened in 1960 so patterson gimlin was 67. So actually, this does predate the article was nineteen seventy, but the events happened much earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, so All
2: right, folks, that'll do it for this segment. Um, you know, stay tuned for the regular Creek Devil show on Saturday.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures,